Christina Della Rocha. Welcome to Season 4 of Solarpunk Presence, the podcast introducing you to the people working today to create a future we'd like to live in. Because if Solarpunk as a genre of fiction dreams about the just and sustainable world we'd like to live in in the future, Solarpunk as a movement rolls up its sleeves and gets down to the business of bringing it about in the present. We hope you enjoy this episode, but first, we need your support. Come join our Patreon at patreon.com slash solarpunkpresence for all sorts of good stuff like bonus clips, dispatches, photo essays, and early access to episodes. Or you can spread the word by writing our podcast a review or recommending us to a friend, or you can do both. And be sure to visit our beautiful new website and catch up on our blog at solarpunkpresence.com. And now, on to the episode. Welcome to Season 4, Episode 3 of Solarpunk Presence. I was lucky enough to talk to Sarah Hutton while she was in the throes of finishing up her PhD. I'll let her introduce herself to you in her own words. I am the um, Research and Community Engagement Lead at the Internet of Production Alliance, and I'm also a Research Fellow in the School of Public Policy at UMass Amherst. And now for our discussion. Today, I'm talking to uh, a doctor-in-waiting, Sarah Hutton, <laughs> about um, her her work and, and her research. Um, so welcome, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and so Sarah is a big fan of this thing called distributed manufacturing, and she's going to tell us all about it. So let me just throw out the first question, and that is, what is distributed manufacturing? Ah, distributed manufacturing. So, so distributed manufacturing. Um, it's it's also known as distributed production, and I like to to call it that because it's a little more approachable in that sense. It really is about being able to access global knowledge and produce items locally. It can often be referred to as peer to peer production, and it's a part of a, a commoning model as well. And so traditionally in regular supply chain manufacturing, especially, you know, a part of uh, some of these globalization initiatives, you will have um, larger manufacturers producing items um, and shipping them out to, to different locations globally. By providing the capability to manufacture locally, um, you take then that traditional supply chain model and kind of break it apart in that sense. And so you then provide the the capability for local labs, even individuals. Um, so for those who are familiar with the, the cottage industry, where people are producing items in their own homes, we have reached a, a point in technological development um, in our, our current state that allows for people to be able to produce things on their own. And that's, these are things if, if people, you know, the general public, um, who may not be as aware of the manufacturing process. And, you know, let's say you need to get your, your car repaired and you bring it in and you need a new distributor cap or you need a new, say, CV joint boot or something like that. You can actually produce it yourself in a local lab instead. Um, as opposed to ordering a special part and having it shipped 
to you. And so this has a lot to do with the opening up of many of the um, the designs and documentation surrounding items that are manufactured. And this can be anything from, you know, car parts. And for those who have heard about the right to repair movement, a lot of the automotive industry has been involved in these conversations and also, you know, handheld devices, cell phones, computers, anything. Okay. So, so yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, just let me interrupt you there. So by lab, yeah, yeah. you mean a place that's equipped with 3D printers or it's equipped with a machine shop and a way to receive uh, digital plans? Or what, what do you mean by lab exactly? Yeah, yeah. Thanks for asking that question because lab can mean different things to different people. For those of us who might live near or be affiliated with a university, it could be a lab space there. Um, there are maker spaces that are becoming more and more uh, available to the public in local communities where, you know, they, they serve as more incubators and startup facilities for local entrepreneurs who are looking to start their own business. And so if you don't have access to like a machine shop, or, uh, you know, you aren't, you don't happen to be a mechanic and you don't have some of the specialized equipment. Um, there are more spaces that, that are available that you can get a membership to, or you could do a one-time fee to use the space or use the equipment, uh, to go in and, and build the thing yourself. Okay. Cause this, I mean, building things is, it's, it's not easy and it's very expensive and requires a lot of expertise. I actually mm -hmm. had a tour last night, just totally uh, coincidentally of a lab at a university where they uh, produce new technology for agriculture. Mm -hmm. And this is mm -hmm. anything from, you know, facial recognition software of sheep to, mm -hmm. um, so you can control who gets to eat and see, mm -hmm. you know, you see who's eaten too often or, mm -hmm. or, but also, but just all sorts of little and all the little bits and pieces that you would actually need to implement the stuff that's going along with the software. Um, mm -hmm. And they had, I mean, most of this facility was a machine shop. I mean, it was crazy and it was full of mm -hmm. these machines and they were costing like a hundred, hundred fifty thousand $150,000 each and mm -hmm. uh, totally, totally insane. So I, yeah, yeah. This is, um, you know, distributed manufacturing and production really, you know, started with, uh, you know, the the growing DIY do-it-yourself and maker movement, where mm -hmm. um, as these spaces and facilities became more publicly available and people are, were able to take classes, workshops, different trainings, and they were learning, you know, that they could do it themselves. Some Some of these things are incredibly complicated, incredibly complex. But some, not necessarily, it really depends on the need. And when it comes to distributed production, it can be, I mean, anything and everything from, you know, healthcare and medical devices to uh, a part to fix your tractor, to plow a field, to, you know, the handle of a broom. You know, there are, are many different, like the, it's just a vast amount of variability of, you know, types of products and also what's available locally. And that's a part of some of the, the work that I do is helping to be able to um, connect and create these, um, you know, different uh, ecosystems of makers and, you know, lab spaces or machine shops so that people can access that information and, and see what might be close to them geographically. 
I think both of us, even though we're slightly different ages, have really grown up during a time of globalization where we've seen companies Mm -hmm. take their factories and all the jobs and offshore them to places where they Mm -hmm. don't have to pay people much and they don't have to worry Mm -hmm. about environmental laws, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So this really feels like it could be a remedy for that. Yes, yes, absolutely. When people talk about the benefits of globalization, you know, it really is about like opening up economic flow and trade between countries and um, being able to to get access to goods, um, products that you might not otherwise have access to because um, of where you're located. But there are a lot of downsides <laughs> to it, too, depending on your local legislation, trade laws, um, let alone different disasters that might come up that, you know, kind of choke off the supply chain. I mean, we saw that. Like COVID, yeah. (laughs) Like COVID, for example. And I mean, and I think that that's where people had, you know, the the general public really started seeing this more and more, a very stark reality that when things get shut down, that's when globalization really falls apart. Because you have these centralized manufacturers that are producing, you know, these items in bulk and shipping them out. And when that one place shuts down, those supplies are choked off. Yeah, and well, so- especially with this just-in-time delivery model as well. Yes. yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And so, you know, we saw that during COVID and a, and a lot of, um, you know, spaces and labs and individuals around the world were, you know, scrambling to find, you know, these open designs online, whether it was for face shields or PPE, or, um, you know, I was involved with a group too, that was looking at backward engineering ventilators that had broken down so that you could produce the component parts to fix them. You know, it was unfortunately due to desperation, right? You know, people were dying. And the reality of it is, is that (laughs) it may have become a global conversation at that point, but this desperation is something that people struggle with every day all over the world. And the fact that it came into the forefront and more of a, you know, a news item at that time, I'm I'm glad for that. And there's that, that pang of, you know, realization too, that like, you know, this is something that, that people struggle with all the time. It's not just during times of like a global pandemic, you know, there, when there are disease outbreaks or, um, some sort of natural event or, you know, political discord or war, entire cities lose electricity. This type of local production is needed at that time. And that's all the time. It's, it's not just when it, it's impacting the entire world. You know, one of the other ways in which, um, distributed production can really help to counter some of the downsides of globalization is with shipping. There's the fragility of the supply chain that we saw breaking down during COVID, but also when you consider the cost of shipping and you consider, you know, the the carbon footprints of it and trucks driving, you know, planes flying, you know, boat, whatever it is, you know, shipping out these goods to different areas. Those are costs that don't need to be. And and by cost, it's not just the the monetary, but the cost of the environment is not necessary. By opening up more of these, you know, more of the designs and documentation so that people have access to be able to produce locally, we're finding that um, there are local manufacturers around the world that are really drawing from, you know, locally sourced products too. 
being provided the capability to produce locally, they're looking to source the materials locally as well. So there's a combined environmental impact reduction there because there are different labs that are recycling um, plastics to build, um, you know, water retention barrels, doing recycled metals to produce hospital beds rather than getting from a central supplier metals that are mined and then shipped. And so there's this combined benefit to the environment in that sense as well. So less of an environmental impact for shipping, less of an environmental impact for sourcing the materials. And also when you talk about, you know, livelihood and we talk a lot about decentralized production as being, you know, a real vehicle for social change. It's infusing local communities with jobs too and upskilling, you know, folks who otherwise may not have had the opportunity to engage in some of this work. And so it's, it's helping to support and grow local economies too. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I guess a couple of things there. One is that people can be proud of the things that they're doing again, I guess. And also people love making things. Yes. <laughs> and they also love sharing how to make things. I mean, all you have to do is flip through YouTube or or or, or TikTok or any of these things. I mean, it's just filled with people or Instagram filled with mm-hmm. videos of people explaining how to make things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's the benefit too. I mean, aside from, you know, the the very positive benefits to local economy and whatnot, it's it's a, of a benefit to the human spirit too. Yeah. Um, yeah one of the best ways to learn how to do something is to teach it. And oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we've seen that, um, you know, technology has really helped to increase, you know, global information sharing and, you know, engineering and the scientific, you know, improvements over time have allowed for solving all of these problems that were plaguing local communities. And it is a point of pride too. Like if if you are you know, given that agency to be able to address air quality issues in your own community, or if there are, you know, high levels of, um, you know, let's say mercury in local water supplies, you can design your own water testing unit and collect that data and advocate at the, you know, the local policy level to really propagate change. And that's something that's it's so wonderful for um, the public and on so many levels where you have community members really empowered and you have these solutions that are being designed by people who live in the communities, not somebody who's living in a, in a cushy lifestyle somewhere else, you know, thinking theoretically about how they might be able to help, you know, it's people really taking charge and um, helping each other out. And that's much more in alignment with that, the commons and the commoning model as well, which is where, you know, peer to peer production is really, you know, has its, its grounding, um, is in commoning. So tell me about this Internet of Production Alliance. What is it? Mm. (laughs) What is it? So the Internet of Production Alliance was something that a group of, engineers and designers and educators, um, these these global stakeholders came together in 2018 in Warsaw to, to have these conversations. Many of the conversations, which, you know, the general public started having more during COVID, 
where, you know, they'd already recognized the fragility of the traditional supply chain model and wanted to start talking about what they could do to, to help address that. There was a retreat and a conversation there. Out of that conversation came one of the, you know, the first data specifications that uh, would be used to, to help start building this infrastructure to support a global ecosystem of distributed production and distributed manufacturing. The Internet of Production Alliance itself is a, it's a, an NGO, humanitarian organization that really looks at, you know, fundamentally providing from the ground up the, the data specifications and building the tooling also and helping to provide some of the funding to engage the community in building this infrastructure. And so to get more specific in what that actually looks like. So going back to how items are produced and in, you know, typical manufacturing, you have a company that engineers a product and they trademark or patent that design and it's theirs. (laughs) <laughs> and when you want to get it, you have to order from them and they ship it out to you and whatnot. So we started out by, you know, taking a look at what does it take to design a product? What what goes into it? What is the know-how that is necessary to build a product? And that's what the initial data specification is actually called is open know-how. It is a data standard that really lays out all of the different areas for product design, including licensing. And that's first and foremost, that it it has to be openly licensed. And so when we talk about open source hardware, I mean, there's open source software, um, open educational resources, open data, open source hardware is really taking a look at the the actual design of, you know, these physical objects as well. And so in the open know-how specification, you have the design files, you have who created it. So you can, you can trace back to who originally designed it. You can include the assembly instructions and some of the community feedback on testing and the specification, the tooling that was added to that specification also produces a manifest. When you design any of these designers or engineers, like if they design an openly licensed product, um, for example, there is a product called the Open Flexure Microscope. There's a manifest file for that that just spells out, this is how you build it. There's the bill of materials, like these are all the materials that you need for it. And that file you can take, it's available. And so you could build it yourself. And so the- even grinding the lenses and this is a light microscope or yeah yeah i mean every everything everything so it's a it's a little different from one of the more commonly known platforms like instructables which Mm -hmm. i i used a lot in my teaching um in working with k-12 educators and teaching you know making maker spaces curriculum and whatnot like if you look at an instructables file like a pdf it's really like a, a guidebook where you have the pictures of everything. This is how you build it, walks you through the process. The difference with open know-how is that this data specification is machine readable. Mm-hmm. And so the intent is that it works together with the other data specifications we are also building as a part of the Internet of Production Alliance, um, which includes the next one I'll talk about, which is open know where. 
And that is uh, a data spec that really helps to map out where you can build the thing. Because when you need to produce something, it's like, you know, you need to know how to do it. But then as I was mentioning earlier, like where, where do you go to build it? If you don't yourself have access to a machine shop or a lab, we are working on gathering data to put together a global um, map of machines as well as places where you could um, ostensibly go to, to build the thing. And so as a part of that, we have the Open Nowhere Data Awards program for the past couple of years, where we are having um, makerspace, uh, folks who work in makerspaces or makerspace leaders go out into their communities and engage in, you know, more of like a citizen science type of data gathering process, where they are mapping out spaces in their communities, as well as the machines that are in them, and bringing the data back to us, and we're putting it on this global map. And so, you know, we have that available on our website and that's growing um, as a part of other projects we're working on as well. So that in addition to being able to discover these open source hardware projects, you then could go to the map and see where you could produce it. And the next part of that, um, as you were mentioning earlier, building these things can be incredibly complex and you may not necessarily have all the skills to do it either. Uh, one of the data specs that I've been working on and that was released earlier this year is the people and skills specification. That's where um, we're looking to, uh, we have this data spec that has the capability to then be turned into a maker, a digital maker passport, where it is identifying people who have specific skills in, in different areas like woodworking, electrical, CNC. And they, that will be added to this global map as well. So then if you don't have the skills, you could find out where, you know, there might be a high concentration of folks who do have those skills. And, you know, most importantly, as a part of this infrastructure, we have different community channels, community forums, as well as some really active WhatsApp groups between different makerspaces. <laughs> okay. Um, I can yeah. imagine. Well, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. So I would not have guessed. I would, you know, I uh, before talking to you, I read a little bit about this distributed production and I just, but I, I hadn't, I guess I didn't read enough to realize how important it would be to build this network of people, this community mm. of people. The community of people is the, really the biggest part. Um, and that's why when I talk about distributed production, I mention peer to peer very often because that's really what it boils down to. You know, when we talk about distributed anything, it really is about the democratization of access. Mm. And so, you know, we start at the, the knowledge level, the information level and make, you know, all of the, the information surrounding the production of items available, openly available, openly licensed. All of the work that we do is in open platforms online, whether it's, you know, uh, repositories in GitHub or some of these data specifications are on a platform called PubPub, which are entirely open and people can comment on because it, the intent is really to, you know, we're helping to shepherd the work um, and be stewards of some of the artifacts of the work, but we don't own it. It is owned by the community. And these larger communities that we work with, like uh, the Global uh, Innovation Gathering Gig or the Gathering for Open Source Hardware, GOSH or Oshawa or, or any of these other organizations, it's the people in them 
that are going to, you know, help carry the, I mean, it's the people who are doing the work at, at the internet of production. It's, I emphasize the alliance part because it's an alliance of people. The internet of production in and of itself is a, is a thing on its own, you know, where the technology that we have now and advances in science, this is work that's already happening and people are already doing it. But how do we connect this network of networks? How do we create this larger ecosystem? And and the work that I've been doing so far in the Alliance has really been a very interesting learning experience where we all have the same goal and we might be located geographically in different areas. But the, the biggest part of this is really connecting all of that because that's where that community power comes from. And that's what's really going to propagate this change, not creating, you know, a single platform that is going to rule them all, but really getting everybody involved and giving everyone this very open access to what's already out there and awareness of it. That's another thing too, is the awareness of it. Yeah. Wow. This is extraordinary. This is very much like when the internet was first born, this is what everyone (laughs) hoped it would be like. This was the first vision for the internet. And then it turned into a global shopping mall. This is also really, really radical in its own way. And Mm -hmm. so who do you get to fund something this radical, this radical democracy here? (laughs) This radical democratization. Well, um, we've worked with the Sloan Foundation. Um, that was, you know, one of the first funders that, that I was brought on board, um, with. You know, we also, uh, there's the EU's Horizon 2020 funding. Um, we've been working with, uh, the Make Consortium project, which, which is a, it's, it's a significant, um, project that I'm very excited about. We're about halfway through it right now. It's a three year term. You know, the development of the people and skills specification for this digital maker passport is a part of this larger program that will then create open educational resources as training materials and look at taking the people and skills spec and turning it into a way to micro-credential and use open badging so that people can get recognized for their skill sets and individual makers outside of an academic institution will have, you know, have the capability to receive, you know, these certifications so that then their expertise is recognized because it's especially what we found um, a lot in, in maker spaces. And in a lot of the research that I've done is that everybody thinks about certifications in a very different way. Um, When you talk about being, you know, a certified electrician or plumber or, you know, whatever, There are people who are incredibly highly skilled that have never been into an official training program. And I'm using heavy air quotes that wouldn't come through on purely audio, but (laughs) it's, it's a lot of these types of structures have been, uh, you know, uh, created Hmm. and perpetuated predominantly by the global North and the Western world. And so we work a lot between Europe and Africa and this make consortium project, it's 19 different institutions. It really, it's looking to create around a 500 plus node of makerspaces between Europe and Africa. And in a lot of the the research I've conducted in asking about, you know, what types of training and certifications do you have? It's all over the map. And there are a lot of people who are like, I don't have any certifications, but 
they can, you know, they're, they're actually expert engineers and can make a hospital bed and, and, um, you know, all of these other products. It really brings into question the way in which education is structured mm. at the, you know, at the global scale. It's a tricky thing. I mean, yeah. I mean, when you think about even going back hundreds of years, you always, you had guilds and all this kind of stuff. And it was, mm-hmm. it was a way of gatekeeping. And, exactly. And protecting your, the, the salary, I guess, or the money that you could make to a large extent that, per, that persists to this day. On the other hand, mm-hmm. without standards, right. you, your building falls down. Right. Right. Exactly. And that's one of the things that we've been talking about a lot as well with community um, built and, and vetted standards, you know, there, there has to be, you know, a lot of quality assurance and testing that's done there as well. And there is a broader conversation going on at the, at the global level, particularly around open source hardware and medical devices that are being Mm. produced. Any product that you make, you, you want it to, you want it to work, you know, but there's a big difference between building a chair that might break and, you know, producing materials that give somebody an infection, you know, or cause like some major health implication, you know, have major, uh, yeah. It, yeah. It might it be toxic or something. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And I mean, that's a part of why standards exist. And that's a part of why, you know, like you said, these, um, you know, certifications and whatnot uh, are accredited to ensure that there right. are you know, high standards of training. <laughs> Because um, you don't just need certifications. You need someone who can certify that the certification is certified. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so we're really looking at what that takes. You know, in the alliance, there are several there are several partners um, that are part of that and that also serve on the board that are organizations from around the world and have engineers, architects, physicians, like we have, it's, it's just a different way of orchestrating this conversation. Um, It's doing it in a a collective. And like you said, it is, it is fairly radical. And it's really taking a look at how can we design these standards that have that same level and quality and trust in them. It's part technology, but a much bigger part is the community. And, you know, a lot of these conversations around quality assurance, especially with medical devices, have to do with provenance tracking as well. And that's something that if you're thinking about a product and, um, you know, like when you purchase a product, you get a warranty sometimes, you know, with the assurance, like if something goes wrong, like this is who is responsible. The The context of that really changes when it's open source hardware, because then it's who's responsible if something goes wrong, is it the person who designed the product? What if, you know, somebody takes that open design and makes a change to it? Because you can, it's openly licensed. You can, you know, make changes. So then is it the person who produced it or is it the person who applied it? Like these are all ongoing questions that are currently being discussed. You know, we're testing out different systems for tracking products and tracking that provenance um, to to put put another option out there for quality assurance. Wow. Okay. So there, I can see there's tons and tons and tons of stuff here to study and research academically, Mm -hmm. which I guess is where you come in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what is it about all of this that you actually study? I was brought into this work. um, I have a, a kind of a unique intersection of experiences. I have been an academic research librarian for 
A very long time. Uh, I'd say, over, yeah, over 15 years at this point. I had worked with, um, you know, more of like a, a as a generalist in working with researchers uh, from every different discipline on open, um, whether it was, you know, I really was focusing on open educational resources. My place in all of this has really been about uh, access to information. I mean, as a librarian, too. But as an educator as well, you know, looking at how can we make things more affordable, accessible, and especially getting, you know, students and community members involved in in building those educational materials themselves. I have a, a strong background as a librarian in data, metadata, how different types of data interact with one another you know, so far as interoperability and like federated searching are concerned, like I'm, I have a very deep knowledge there. And so when talking about building this global ecosystem of interoperable data specs and tooling and whatnot, like that's what I, you know, I bring to the table in that regard. The other hat or hats, I guess I wear is that my you know, my doctoral work has been in open educational resources, but also educational policy and really taking a look at changing the context of how we engage with the public in being able to access educational opportunities and, and training and really to, to help, you know, improve lives um, and increase livelihoods. And I've, you know, recognized all the gatekeeping that's done. I mean, as, as many of us do um, within higher education and, you know, that structured system and about the, you know, the opportunity and the promise that open education provides. I see this as being very much a part of it. This is a a vehicle, another vehicle to be able to provide access to information and access to opportunity. On a personal note, and I think this is why my uh, I ended up getting involved in teaching, making maker spaces and that type of curriculum as well. I grew up in a rural community on a farm, um, didn't have internet access, you know, where I grew up still doesn't have reliable internet access and sometimes not electricity too. You know, I, I grew up very much in a DIY culture. You know, whenever we needed to to fix something, we would get books from the local library and learn how to do it and do it ourselves and use what materials we had locally available. I didn't realize it at the time, but my family didn't have the financial resources to do a whole lot, but it never felt that way because we were able to do it ourselves and, you know, have, have a livelihood. I've seen and lived, you know, lived that experience and lived in, you know, more of a, like a, a barter economy type of agricultural community. And so having lived that experience and seeing all of the advances that have taken place since, you know, I was a kid years and years and years ago, and it's really exciting to see it being a possibility at the global scale, but also with that localized focus, because everybody has their own context. We do have to take globalization back and make it something that's good for people and not mm -hmm. just good for companies and CEOs mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and business and huge business owners. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, oh, go on. Oh, well, so back to the, getting back to the question that you had asked about, like where I come into this work. I do a lot of research. <laughs> I do a lot of research. And so I am a hermeneutic phenomenologist um, <laughs> by training, 
but basically like, you know, more qualitative, I do qualitative and quantitative data analysis where my strength really lies is in, um, you know, that semi-structured interview with people, you know, and talking with people in the communities, gathering that data, making recommendations based on, you know, that localized context about, so we have this data spec, you know, I did a lot of research um, in that people and skills data spec before we put it together in talking to people about how it could potentially be used, what should be in it. Uh, And then when it comes to developing the tooling, I get involved with designing user journeys, um, doing user experience testing, and making recommendations to some of the, you know, software engineers from the community who are building the products. Yeah, I do that research to help ensure that the work that we do remains, you know, user and community centered and doesn't, you know, slide into techno solutionism, to be honest, because no matter where any organization's heart is, like that's always a risk. As we're transitioning into this, trying to build like a, a new economy, we're still stuck in cap, you know, this capitalist ideal and a lot of the funding that can come, like you really have to keep an eye on that. Making sure that all of the work is still, you know, evidence-informed, but based in the community is really important to us. My last question then mm. is, um, how can people learn more about this Internet of Production Alliance or, or you know, or join the party, as it were? We do have a few working groups um, that people can join. We have the, the Open Know How Working Group that any they're they're open to anyone who wants to join uh whether you're you know an a community member a member of the public a educator a software engineer all of the meetings are open we post all of our our meeting minutes online all of our discussions online you can hop into one of those um we have our monthly community calls the recordings of those are on YouTube so folks can watch those and get a, a sense of like the flavor of conversations but they can join one of those to meet folks and hear more about what we're doing. And the community forum is really where people can hop on and engage. And our our community forum is actually cross-threaded with a couple of other global organizations um, with um, the, the global gathering for open source hardware, GOSH. Um, and so we do a lot of cross a lot of cross posting and um, sharing there of opportunities for funding or um, engagement if people want to to develop tooling if they want to engage, get engaged in research or if they want to present their research at events. We post a lot of upcoming events and, and opportunities there. Oh, that's fantastic! This has been really, really, really interesting. Thank mm-hmm. you very much for taking the time to talk with me. Of course. Thank you. And that's a wrap for this episode. Don't forget to recommend us to a friend. Please write us a review. Please, please, please. Or support us on Patreon. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Solar Punk Presence, a podcast hosted and produced by Ariel Kroon and Christina Della Rocha. The audio for this episode was recorded in part on the traditional territory of the neutral Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe peoples. And in Germany. The opening and closing music for this podcast is Water Cooler Gang by Monkey Warhol, available for use under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. 
Don't forget to support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash solarpunkpresence. Every little bit helps us keep bringing you discussions and interviews. Until the next episode, keep dreaming. And stay solarpunk. <laughs>